This is a Broad Pods production. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio On The Go. I'm Cecilia, the producer. This is the audio of the live show that played out uh, this Tuesday, the first Tuesday after the federal election. So there was a lot of unpacking to do. Joe and Serpil are our hosts today. We talk politics, we talk AFLW, pay rise, and we talk about the joys that can come from crafting. I saw a woman buy a potato cake with her coffee this morning at 7.45 and I, I wish I also had done that because let me tell you, I need that woman's potato cake. We've all got potato cake in me this morning. We do. What? I, more power to her. She's my new hero. <laughs> She's just gone, yes, I'm having some fried goods for breakfast and I don't care. Why not? <laughs> Absolutely. We have, we have a very big show planned for you. We're going to be talking, of course, about the election results, what was an extraordinary uh, seismic shift in politics that we all witnessed over the weekend. Uh, to help us do that, author and political reporter for The Guardian, Amy Ramakis, is going to be joining us. Um, she's amazing. She's uh, Her book, On Reckoning, is one of the most powerful things I've read in only, oh gosh, it's a fairly small book, but incredible. Yeah, I think I smashed through it in about an hour. I mean, I had a migraine and mm. it didn't stop me from reading it because it was a, it was a page turner mm, yes yeah. it's quite the treatise on women's rage and so I'm looking forward to Amy's perspective on this incredible election in our new government uh, we're going to be also talking about the AFLW CBA the new uh, enterprise the co- what a collective bargaining agreement what does CBA stand for collective uh, bargaining agreement yes with uh, journalist and podcaster Marnie Vinnell and I don't know are you much of a seamstress a crafter a maker? No, I'm, I'm a letdown to my mother. <laughs> <laughs> All of our mothers could sew and then there's us. What happened? I, I, I don't know. I can't even sew a button. I mean, I've tried. You, you could, could sew a button. I could, but it never looks right. <laughs> it's like clunky and fat and, I don't know, too many stitches or something. I don't something. get it right. Well, we're going to be joined by sewing superstar and author Daisy Braid. She is known as DIY Daisy and she, she tells us that she, we could sew. She tells us she knows how. So we're looking forward to exploring how to do that. And that's all coming up in the show today. Actually, this week we are releasing a little mini-series, which is in collaboration with Coast Trek. I'm doing Coast Trek Melbourne on Friday. I'm doing the 30K walk. 
I am so jealous, Joe, because you know I wanted to do that, right? Mm. And I did the ring around and I could not convince more than two people. And you needed, you needed a team of four. Yes. So we were just missing one person. So I'm a little bit heartbroken, but I, I'll follow, I'll just live through you. That's all right, because, you know, you could go and do the Margaret River one later in the year if you could rustle up that extra person. Also uh, Adelaide as well um, and Brisbane. So there's three other events, but... We, Broad Radio, are collaborating with Coast Trek and releasing a little mini podcast series called the Broad Radio Coast Trek Collection, which is going to help you if you're out training, not necessarily just for Coast Trek, just generally out pounding the pavement. It's a little bit of something to keep you company. So look out for that. That's going to be released this week. Right. Sample, what were your reflections on this extraordinary election that we've just uh, seen unfold before our eyes? It was... It, I couldn't stop watching the TV. I was up till 1am just looking at the, the seats and uh, and seeing the, the shift in the political landscape. I mean, it was pretty amazing to see all across the country the, the trend where in the, the sort of leafy affluent suburbs where the, the votes went to the independents from the libs um, and... Uh, the the shift towards you know the the, the key issues like climate and you know um, women's issues and um, diversity and local issues so that all sort of coming bubbling to the surface mm. I, I suppose and and even though like economics is always a, a key driver in elections people voted for things beyond economics people voted for things that um were to do with the the common good of this country mm. which you know I, I haven't felt that in an election for a very very long time except perhaps we're in a bubble and there are people that don't feel that way <laughs> it's not their common good you know like i feel like there is i i have spent time since the weekend in which i was i was overjoyed um and i'll share with you where i was when when the election was unfolding but yesterday i was with some people who didn't feel like it was their result and and they weren't particularly happy and i reckon that that that's always going to happen with mm. every election. But I think the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, it wasn't a landslide Labor win. We know that. But it was a landslide shift away from the libs. And I think the numbers reflect that Australians are thinking differently mm. about politics. So, there, like, you know, um, you know, there was more of a Greens wrote in Queensland. There was, you know, in some key seats in... Um, uh, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Perth, particularly, that were rusted on Liberal seats, they lost their yeah. seats. You, you know, like it was quite incredible to mm. to watch that unfold, and then to to see a PM that stepped in and, you know, um, he, Al, Anthony Albanese's speech. You know, a few of the uh, some of the first things that he said really resonated with with me. I kind of got teary, and I've never got teary when a Prime Minister has spoken before when he said something along the lines of, I can't remember his exact words, he said, you know, if you're in a commission flat, if you're yes. a kid in a commission flat watching this, you know, as someone, as a kid actually who spent part of my life in a commission flat, that really resonated with me. That made me really emotional. I was like, yes, there is someone there who has a lived experience of having done the um, the hard yards and, and he's got here 
as opposed to going through, you know, one of the most elite public uh, private schools in the country and, and then being a career politician and not really having a sense of what it is to be an everyday Australian. Mm. I, I That sort of gave me a real sense of hope that perhaps we're going to have a government who actually listens to everybody's lived experience. Yeah, there was certainly lots of firsts. You know, there was, there was, it's our first, I think, Prime Minister with a non-Anglo surname. I believe it's, we've got our first MP who is a refugee. Yeah. We've got all of these teals coming in and that leads me, thanks Joe, for a beautiful segue, to um, another first, which is where I was on Saturday night, which is the first time the seat of Goldstein is held by a non-liberal and a woman. So I was lucky enough to be on the fringes of Zoe Daniel um, as she she's the member for, now the member for Goldstein. Um, she was the independent candidate for Goldstein and I was lucky enough to be on the fringes sort of supporting her in her, in her campaign. And so I was there on Saturday night and I've never been at an election celebration slash well, it was always going to be a celebration, win or lose, really, because the community had worked together so beautifully and so many new friendships and connections were made. So regardless of the result, there would have been a celebration, but most definitely on Saturday when what hilariously happened was that actually the ABC ran a ticket to say that it looked like she had won long before their scrutinies in the room had actually decided that was going to be the case. So the crowd was celebrating and... Zoe is, uh, she does everything by the book and so she was not going to celebrate until we knew and then of course until Tim Wilson conceded but it was a very beautiful moment and then she gave this gorgeous speech. I don't know if I've tried to sort of cue it up there. Beck's running the show today over there and so this is um, her tribute to Vida Goldstein who the electorate is named after. A hundred or so years ago there was a woman called Vida Goldstein. She was an internationally renowned suffragist. She was the first Australian in the Oval Office. She ran as an independent several times because she was so independent that she couldn't bring herself to run for either of the major parties. Vida was not elected. This seat is in her name, and today I take her rightful place. Oh, it was very exciting. I was yelling and whooping and hollering. Amazing, just amazing. And as a woman of a certain age, which is what we're being described now, this wave of women who's voted in the independence, um, I celebrate being a woman of a certain age and having that uh, power to make a decision on behalf of this country and vote in that way. Absolutely. I mean, we're the wise women. We're, <laughs> we're the women who know what, you know, what, what should shift. Mm. So if that's... If that's a label that we have to wear to get things done, Jo. <laughs> I'll, I'll own it. We are getting things done. Um, so, yes, it's a very exciting time. In a moment, we're going to uh, speak with Amy, Amy Ramakis um, just to get more of the election unpacked and sort of unfolded there. But firstly, let's uh, welcome everybody who's commenting already on social media, people who are loving the idea of a hash brown or a potato cake right now. <laughs> People suggesting that they would walk with you, Sarepool, oh. if you wanted to do the coast trek. They're so oh, into lovely. it. Yes. <laughs> um, and people saying, yes, they too started off in a commission flat 
and she was in tears, 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 that's Eche, um, and people feeling the empathy and kindness as we go into this new time with this new government. What a fabulous result for women. It was a very exciting time. Let's, uh, well, in just a moment, we're going to get Amy Ramakis to give us her perspective on this extraordinary election. Well, it's been described as an election that was decided by women and one woman who has documented and explained the growing rage that many women have felt across this country over the last year or so with such visceral effect, I must say, is Guardian Australia's political reporter and author Amy Ramakis. And she joins us now after what has been, I imagine, a massive week and weekend. Amy, thank you so much for making the time for us. No, thank you for having me. And uh, um, yes, it has been pretty massive. I think I've had about three hours sleep over the last 72 hours is trying to, you know, get everything together um, for everyone who's trying to understand the selection. So I really appreciate you having me on. Well, I was uh, I did watch your report at I think about two a.m. on Saturday night. I had been partying. I've just explained I, I was supporting Zoe Daniel in her independent campaign, so we were celebrating. But you were working very hard. What was the mood as you watched the, this seismic shift in Australian politics? Was it was it surprised? Um, I think I think there was surprise because. While the polls pointed to change, while uh, people that you spoke to pointed to change, while nobody seemed to find anything that they could like about Scott Morrison or his agenda, uh, I think people were still afraid to hope that there would be change after what happened in 2019. So I think a lot of people were holding themselves back from believing that there was going to be a shift and you know, at, at The Guardian, uh, we approached it as we do everything, where we're just going to hold people to account and we're going to scrutinize. But there was still, I think, um, a couple of moments where we were like, oh my goodness, like, you know, these women independents have pulled this off. We've seen Tim Wilson lose his seat, Josh, Josh Frydenberg on the night you know, doing the numbers, we were like every single postal vote would have to break his way in order for him to retain his seat. So he has lost it. Trent Zimmerman has lost his seat. Katie Allen has lost the seat of Higgins. There was just watching these blue ribbon seats fall one by one by one, watching the nationals have to see that they have seen swings against them. We saw Kalpa become marginal. We saw Nichols become marginal. These are very important nationals areas. And uh, we saw Hinkler, one of the coal areas. Same with Flynn. We saw them start to go backwards. We saw Peter Dutton probably sweat over whether he was going to hold on to his seat or not. We ended with Pauline Hanson unsure if she was going to be returned to the Senate. I think that... Uh, it was an absolute moment in Australian politics where voters, particularly women, particularly younger people, particularly those who have suffered through just an inordinate amount of tragedy and frustration and pain through 
climate change, and I don't just mean the fires and the floods, I also mean the pandemic. They just looked to their leadership and found it wanting and said, enough. And it's not necessarily that we've made the choice to go to a Labor government because of reform or because of a big policy platform. It's looking for change, but change with checks and balances. And that was the power of the independence and minor party movements. And that was also the power of what we saw in the Senate. It's an extraordinary moment in Australian politics where the minor parties and the, uh, the major parties, sorry, are now on notice that they cannot take anyone's votes for granted. That's an interesting um, fact that you bring up, Amy, about that they can't take anyone's votes for granted because there was a few trends that came out. Obviously, gender was a factor in this election, um, but also not listening to the locals was a real factor for, for both parties. I mean, we saw that in Western Australia, right, where um, there was a huge swing in Western Australia compared to the rest of the nation because, you know, the PM at some point had referred to West Australians as, as troglodytes, cave dwellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there was also, um, you know, what, what fell out in, in Fowler where we saw how the Labor Party ignored um, that the fact that the locals wanted to Lee in that seat and they parachuted in Christine Keneally. And then Daly wiped the floor essentially right and came in as the the independent it's like the locals were saying you're not paying attention right Mm, absolutely that's that's another story of this election i mean uh i think christina keneally was probably one of the most people on the night i think that they uh the labor party believed that being the Labor Party was enough in Fowler because it had always been such a a safe seat for them. But as you said, the community absolutely stood up and said, well, no, we are to be represented by someone who actually does represent us, who looks like us, who has a similar experience to us. And now we have uh, the first refugee in the parliament, which is just in terms of having voices that can reflect the Australian experience, that is beyond due and that is a a lesson that the Labor Party is going to have to to listen to. Uh, Exactly what you said in WA, I mean, how much more clear the people of Western Australia by and large could have made the fact that they respected and liked their government's decisions to make and to have that ignored by someone who's had a completely different experience on the East Coast, I think really, really played in to the decision that Western Australians made. But then all politics is local. And that is something I think that has been forgotten by federal politicians over the last uh, couple of terms of government. There's so much concentration here on culture wars and you know, big, big issues that they think everyone is talking about. But people care about those issues, but they really care about what's going on in their local communities. Every time I'm out with a politician, it doesn't matter what level. Sorry, my cat is now attacking the tripod. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) It's what level a politician they are, federal, state or local, uh, the issues that people bring up are health and education, but then potholes, yarns on the road, 
what is going to happen with a particular road closure? And we saw that happen in in Brisbane, the proof that all politics is local. The Greens have won have, have run an extraordinary campaign in southeast Queensland and in Brisbane. And this is not something they've been doing overnight. This is something that has been going on for years. They have taken state, state seats off the LNP and off Labor. They have done it by door knocking, by uh, having people speak to them about their local concerns, about having a conversation where it's not just one visit, there's follow-up, there's, uh, you know, we really want to try and fix this. And in the seats of Brisbane and Griffith, one of the biggest issues was airport noise. Mm. And this was completely ignored by the major parties. But in Brisbane, of course, with the pandemic, there's been no flights for a couple of years. The flights restarted. Everyone remembered just how much of an imposition that noise is lives. Brisbane Airport does not have a curfew. So you were having planes land and all hours of the night, which was really impacting locals' lives. And you had the Greens say, we're going to try to do something about that. And you had the major parties completely ignore it. And when you speak to people in Brisbane, that's one of the issues that they say really mattered to them. And it's why they went, you know what, we're going to turn from the major party. It's going to vote Greens because they understand the issues that are impacting our lives. So yes, all politics is local. And that, re that reflects in the candidates that you choose uh, to represent your electorate. And it also reflects in the issues that are important to your electorate. So let's look to what now is the government and uh, the members of parliament that will be taking their place in in parliament. Um, 15 out of 17 seats that changed hands went to women. Um, and we have a record number of women MPs now. So what impact do you think that is going to have on our government and, you know, in real terms to Australians? We know that diversity improves any political outcome because the more different voices you have in the room, the more experiences you have in the room, the better policy you're going to get because you don't just have a group of people with the same experience going, this is what we think is going to work. You have people who go, actually, no, that's culturally insensitive. That's not going to address what's happening in my community. Uh, have you considered how that's going to impact women or, you know, anyone with a vagina? Mm. Have you considered how it's going to impact somebody of, you know, a different age group? You have all of those people start to speak up and improve things. And that into your parliament is such a powerful shift because suddenly you're not going to have people just talking about hacks or just talking about particular outcomes that they're going to impose upon the Australian people because that's the way it's always been done. You're going to have people talking about what life is like in lower socioeconomic because they've lived it and they're from there. You're going to have people what life is like for refugees, what gaps exist 
in the services in Australia because that is what is happening in their in their homes and in their electorates. You're going to have people talking about what it's like to be a woman of colour in this country, what it's like to be a First Nations woman in this country because they know they're not just relying on advisors. And you're going to have people just go, well, hang on, that seems like absolutely outrageous to me. And I know that that is not going to be received well in my electorate because you have people who have actually been in their electorates, not coming up as politicians, but coming up as members of their communities who just, you know, like Kathy McGowan, like Helen Haynes before them, really understand what is going on in their communities. And that is that is just amazing. I mean, governments always reflect what their cabinets look like, what their front bench look like, and what their back benches look like. And we are now looking at a government that doesn't look like a group of white middle-aged men for the first time in this. I can't even I can't even name how long that's been. I would say ever, yeah. wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, look, I'm finding it really heartening because um, for the first time, I think the the parliament is going to start reflecting slowly, slowly what we refer to as multicultural Australia. I mean, I think I, I saw there was 10 new Asian Australians and seven Indigenous um, First Nations people there representing us, which is so heartening to, to see, and, and the, the flood of women as well. So finally, we're, we're going to see a cross-section of Australian society. Obviously, we can always do better, but I, I find that really hopeful. I find it really hopeful that the new PM hopped on stage and the first words that spilled out of his mouth was that he was going to make a commitment to the Uluru Statement um, from the heart. I find that the fact that we could have a um, constitutional voice for Indigenous Australians re really heartening. But what does that mean, Amy, in, in real terms? How, how, what do we need to do to, to get there? I mean, they made a commitment, but what happens next? Uh, what happens next is a lot of consul, like a lot, a a lot of listening First Nations people about what they want and how they want this process to work because uh, this isn't about, you know, people like me. This is about listening and also just taking the beyond patient and gracious hand of First Nations people in, in this nation and going, uh, thank you, thank you for, for waiting. Uh, so patiently for us to get our act together, we're going to work through this and we're going to be led by you. Uh, and uh, they'll have a minister in Linda Burney who has been working on this for years. Uh, Senator Pat Dodson has also been working upon this for years. And uh, a crossbench and progressive Senate who also want to see change happen. And I hope from what Anthony Albanese was saying on Saturday night, that this is going to be the end to one of the most awful cultural wars that this country has propagated in that he will take everyone together, but we're not going to blow it up. We're not going to pretend that this is divisive that this is something that means that, you know, somebody is rising above somebody else, that it's a third chamber in the parliament. 
We're not going to pretend it's any of that stuff. We're going to say what it is, which is consultation with Indigenous people before in legislation is enacted, which impacts their lives. Hmm. That's all the voice is. Inst constitutional recognition is like, I mean, I think we can all agree beyond due. It's absolutely ridiculous that in 2022, we are still talking about what is going to happen and the fact that it's not already part of our constitution. Because if we're going to have it that underpins Australia's law, we need to recognise the people who were here before was in place. It's just... Yep. Yeah. Uh, the voice we to Parliament is literally just here's some legislation that's really going to impact your life. Think about that. Well, how can we improve it? How how can we make it better? How can we make this something that's going to work for your communities and for your people? That's all the voice is. And the fact that when it was first raised in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, you immediately had politicians, including Malcolm Turnbull and Barnaby Joyce. I mean, Barnaby, we know where he's coming from. But including Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister at the time, who is, you know, quite liberal and probably now regrets some of what he said, they immediately jumped on the, this is a third parliament and that's mm. not what we do here. And it just started completely this ridiculous culture war that has now made it so much harder to even have this conversation. It's just ridiculous. So I yes. hope we have come to the end of that ridiculousness and we can begin to treat policy seriously in Australia because this matters. Yes, it absolutely does. And, and it, I, I was very emotional when um, the new Prime Minister uh, was the first thing that he said. And when we saw the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags in that symbolic gesture hung for the first time in the Blue Room, just amazing. And there is so much that uh, we're hearing that uh, the new parliament, the new government will be doing and, and Prime Minister Albanese will be doing as far as ICAC and you know climate change and all these things. So um, let's hope that the promises that we've heard actually are rolled out. Um, I'm aware that your internet is extremely jumpy, Amy, and you're very tired. So I just have one more thing to ask ask you um, because and I want people to please read your book on reckoning I found it um, just incredibly moving and uh, it is it, as I said a visceral really exquisite exploration of women's rage and as you know a very moving account of your own experience of sexual assault it's just a, an incredible book and a really important one and I read it again heading into the election I must say and it was sort of gave me a sense that you kind of it was like a portent. It was like a foretelling of what was going to happen <laughs> because it was released in January. And then, yes, we saw that women did have such an impact in this particular election. But over the weekend, you or yesterday, I think it was, you tweeted, rage can be galvanising and sometimes you have to burn things down to start afresh. Stay angry. There's so much more work to be done. So what's top of your to-do list now? Uh, I think we need to to just take a moment and look at how much work there is still to be done. Um, I know that when there are changes, there is always the like exhale where people go, okay, things are going to be better now, but things are exactly the same as they were on May 20. 
I think people just feel better that they're not going to have such a divisive government as they move forward. So having uh, uh, Kate Jenkins' Respect at Work report implemented in its entirety, including uh, ensuring that workplaces take positive steps to stamp out sexual harassment and abuse before it actually happens. Like rather than wait until and then go, oh, oh, jolly, we should have done something about that. So sorry. To have to do put the onus on companies to start creating safe I think is a very important one. I think uh, actually taking complaints seriously and enacting the foster review in terms of what's happened in parliament and ensuring that that is a safe place for people. But then we need to actually just move beyond those reports and start looking at what we're doing for funding for domestic and family violence groups for women's legal aid centres. We need to have a look at the partnership agreements because we've had all of these headline figures promised of money that is going to go and improve uh, you know, situations, but that has money hasn't flowed. It hasn't gone through to the people who need it. You still have groups who are crying out for assistance because the violence hasn't stopped. The mm. intimidation hasn't stopped. There are women listening to this non-binary trans who are still experiencing everything that we've been talking about for a couple of years this is their reality and this is what we need to start addressing it's not just every time something happens we hold a vigil and we all go oh how could this have happened it's actually starting to look at the root causes and giving the funds and giving the resources to the people and groups who have ideas of how to address it, but on the first, on the front line, know how to extricate people from those situations and get them the help and support they need to begin moving on with their lives. It is really important. If you live in a rural and regional community, there are gaps that are so wide to your safety. There are no shelters, even though our shelters in the cities are full, there's no shelters, there's no services, there's no counseling or psychiatric or psychological help. There's nothing for children who have been through those experiences because of how many resources have been stretched. And there's no money going to the groups to help that. There's no real you know, police liaison when you have to go to court. You have to travel like intense dif di distances. There's not necessarily support when you get to the court if you've managed to make the steps to try and improve your, like, your situation by actually taking this to the court, which is such a burden on survivors. There's none of that. And that's what we need to start addressing, mm. not just going, here is a great headline. We have a prime minister for women. We have a women's cabinet. We're going to fix this. Just talking to the people on the ground and going, what do we need to do? Like, what do we need to do? And as a society, actually start looking at changing our language, changing the way we approach these issues, changing the way we begin to think when we hear issues that evolve around people that we like. And I think the greatest example of that at the moment is despite everything we have been through, we still 
have young people doing TikToks to a woman performing, well, I say performing because that's what the TikToks are, to a woman explaining her pain in the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. We have taken that and we've turned it into a performance art because mm. we like the guy in the movies that we mm. have seen. But we don't necessarily believe his ex-wife when she says, I was abused because we like the guy. And that has really, really impacted me because I'm reading these comments, I'm watching these, you know, TikToks or, you know, whatever you're I'm like going through the tweet and I'm just, this is exactly what we've all been talking about, that it's really easy to go believe, but when it comes to actually believing women, and that doesn't mean always just assuming that the person is guilty. Believing women means creating the space where you believe that their accusations and allegations are possible, that you listen to them so that you can have a proper investigation into what happened. That's all it is. It's yeah. just not dismissing yeah. out of hand. Mm. After all that, we still live in a world where a woman says, this happened to me, and people go, this happened to me. Really? Mm. Oh, what about the poor guy? And that's what we need to start addressing. Not yeah. just with our, but with our sons. Absolutely. Amy, I'm grateful to you for your incredible insight and for your honesty and how raw you are in sharing your experiences. It's absolutely critical. Um, your voice is very powerful. So thank you so much for joining us on Broad Radio today. Thank you for having me and I apologise, Internet. Uh, hopefully that'll be another decision that is rectified. <laughs> yes, with that's right. To the NBN network. Okay. Alrighty, you take care. Thank you. Broad Radio. Talking inspo we love, info we need and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2am existential crisis, <laughs> we've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Well, Sepal, to other fantastic news that has taken place over the last week. The AFLW, and I'm a massive fan. I love the sport. I love the players. And I'm thrilled to read over the last week the AFLW collective bargaining agreement was announced that has seen players working under better conditions than ever before. And to give us the details, we're welcoming journalist and podcaster. I want one of the new guard of brilliant women working in sport. I'm so, I'm just loving it. Marnie Vinnell, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, listen, Marnie, it's great to see you and all the wonderful work you're doing out there in the media, which is uh, kind of new to see so many women doing what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. There's been such a huge increase lately in the coverage of women's sports, which means people like me get to, you know, cover these sports a lot more, which is very exciting. I think we're seeing such a monumentous shift. And also in the care, I don't think when I was growing up that even if I wanted to be a sports reporter, that I would be speaking so much about a collective bargaining agreement. You know, we talk about (laughs) players' injuries or what's going on. Sometimes their personal lives crop up, but never... um, to the extent of pay because along with the rise of women's sports, the fandom also includes how they're being treated and their welfare. So to see so much attention to this CBA is really awesome. It's true. Well, can you give us the nuts and bolts of the agreement? Yes, yes. So the CBA, it is a document that's signed by the AFL and then the AFL Player Association. And it just sets out the minimum terms and conditions of that player's employment. So that includes the hours, season length, which is a very sticky point that we'll get to, um, and very importantly, pay. And then it also includes things in there, which is very important when we're looking at female um, and non-binary athletes, which is you know, around like pregnancy and maternity leave and pay that goes into that and allowing parents, you know, to to have that care. And also because we see so many injuries in the women. So it's also about the support that they get in, in that. So the big story to come out of this is pay, but there's a lot of other things within this agreement, which also is, a, is quite important. But the big news is that players across the board are going to get a 94% pay increase, which is phenomenal. And especially because, you know, it's not equal pay when we look at the men's. And I think a lot of people may be a little bit disheartened by that. But these players and coaches and people in the Players Association weren't campaigning for equal pay. They were campaigning for livable wages so that they could, you know, really commit to this league and this competition in a more sustainable way that looked after their own welfare rather than, you know, they're more realistic. They're not going to be paid the same as the men, which are paid as, you know, (laughs) huge, huge sums. So it really is a massive win. And especially because this pay increase is across all tier players, I think it's easy to look at players or stars like Taylor Harris and look at their pay and then use that as an example of, well, these women are being paid quite well. But this pay increase is across the board. So Tier 4 players will now receive $39,184 as opposed to just above twenty grand. So that means that they it's a lot more sustainable for them to be in the competition. Hey, Mani, you, you mentioned livable wages. Does that mean the majority of the players can actually give up their day jobs and just focus on the sport? Not yet. Uh, This pay is for the season, which is just 10 rounds long. And it is good to see such a pay increase for that time because it's a 10-round season plus finals, but these are 
athletes, year-long athletes, you know, they can't just decide to start training at the start of that one week and then they're done at Mm. the end of finals. It doesn't really work like that when you're an elite athlete. So this pay will help that year-long training uh, and commitment to playing that they have. But even, you know, $40,000 isn't a lot for a lot of people to live on full-time, especially if you are supporting families. So a lot of these players still will have other jobs outside of being AFLW players, but it is a huge step towards the direction that we are trying to go. You know, the AFLP, the um, Players Association wants to be full-time by 2026. That scene is quite ambitious from the AFL who have not um, agreed to that timeline yet, but it's a huge step in that direction and something that we can really celebrate. Yeah, I think too, um, because I have spoken with AFLW players uh, in the last couple of years and they've all felt this real responsibility to players that come after them and that they don't want to seem unreasonable, as you've said, Marnie, because they're very protective of what they're building and understanding that, of course, the money isn't there to to be paid anywhere equal to the guys. But at the same time, this decision recognizes the commitment of those players and the incredible hard work that they have put in to build it and you know it's all stepping stones so this particular moment leads to as you say money down the track a time at which they are perhaps paid equal to what the guys are being paid it's very it's very you know landmark Definitely. And it's a huge vote of confidence that, you know, Gil McLaughlin and the AFL have given in the women's competition and the women's league. If they're going to invest all of this money, they're doing it for a reason. And that is that they can see the longevity of this league, of this competition. It is the biggest area of growth for the AFL. They would be very silly or naive not to see that in investing that. And this huge pay increase and everything else within the CBA, it does say to all of these players, all to all of the league and the competition and to the fans, you know, we believe in you. We believe in this competition. We believe in its longevity. We want to invest in it because we can see it going places. Um, And as much as, you know, it's giving to the competition, the competition is also giving so much to the AFL community. Mm. So to see that being paid back, it's, it's awesome. It's really, it's really, really awesome. And it's also awesome to see the players, you know, have that unified front because they're fighting for the future of the league and of the competition to, to see them all band together. I just, I love it so much. It made me laugh so much. Um, Steph Kiochi, she is the Collingwood captain and a lot of the Collingwood girls are currently um, off in Europe. And there was this photo of them on the beach and Steph Kiochi just like had a comment that was like, if you keep tagging me in all these photos while I'm fighting for your future, you're going to be unfollowed. <laughs> well, it was actually Steph that I was thinking of who we'd spoken to who because uh, she's a teacher and she yep. was managing, you know, flying interstate to play and then coming back and having to teach. And she was tired when I spoke with her about this last year. Um, and she was like, yeah, of course we want this league to grow, but also I'm tired and it starts to, you know, the, the privilege to play is only so much. I need actually a little more than that. Um, so just very quickly, let's talk about the season. We know that it's going to be launched in August now. Um, what's the feeling around that? It's a very quick turnaround. It's a very quick turnaround. I've got a lot of inner conflict going on because I do think that the league will take quite a hit from this rush period. You know, pre-season starts in the 12th of June and then the draft is the 29th of June. So we're having the draft after the pre-season even begins. So we're expecting these teams and these clubs to 
formulate new game plans and game styles and brands of footy when they don't even know who's going to be on their playing list. It's a huge ask and to get that all going really quickly. And then because the season length is only 10 rounds, you've got to kind of just get out the gate really going. You don't have time to kind of find your feet because you've only got a certain amount of weeks to do it. But also in saying that, I'm an Essendon gal um, and they're coming in as one of the expansion teams. So I've never been more excited in my (laughs) entire life. (laughs) It is so exciting to see the new teams join the league. This will be the first time we have a full, is it all of them now? Yeah, all 18 clubs. So yeah, Port Adelaide, Sydney, Hawthorne Mm. and Essendon are all coming in. And I spoke to Georgia Nansgown, who is the inaugural uh, signing for Essendon. And she just said how great it is that all AFL fans get to feel included in this game now. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm a Collingwood supporter, so Marnie, when when the time comes, <laughs> there'll be some hot competition between the Pies and the Bombers. I'm looking forward to that playing out. Me too. I'm, I'm especially looking forward to Hawthorne Essendon because they're top of the table in the VFLW. Plenty of those players mm. are going to be going from VFL level to AFL level and I hope that rivalry just translates over. Oh, it's all good for footy, as they say. Marnie, thank you so much for joining us and giving us that rundown today. Thank you so much. All right, well, Seppel, I feel like this particular show is all about um, things I could never do, really. <laughs> run for Parliament, right? Oh, you could totally run for Parliament, <laughs> No chance. Joe. Absolutely no chance. Play footy? <laughs> you, you, you don't think I could? Oh, no. look, I, I could give footy a good go, I reckon. You reckon? Yeah. Do you have a team? Oh, look, I, I'm a funny one because... I spent a lot of my um, childhood in Perth, so my team has always been the Eagles, but it doesn't sit right with my bunch of friends because a lot of them are Dockers supporters and then, of course, you know, being in Melbourne. So I've reverted back to my childhood team when I was in Melbourne, Richmond. Oh, good, good choice. So I've only watched one game, so I can't say that I'm invested yet. That's okay. Well, here's the third thing that I could never do, and that is so, which leads us to our next and final guest for the day, Daisy Braid Canso. She's an author. She's a very popular and clever, crafty inspiration on Insta. And here she is. Hi there, Daisy. Hello. (laughs) All right. Hi. Well, Sample and I have, uh, we've just confessed that we we can't sew, um, but you can. And you are sharing your love with so many thousands of people. It's a bit of a crafting revolution out there at the moment in the last five years. Why do you love it so much? Well, there's a lot of reasons that I love sewing. One of them is because of the community. I feel like the sewing community and the creative community in Australia, it's a very supportive place. And I, I think that no matter where you are in your journey of making, you'll find someone that has similar interests as you or someone that resonates with the way that you want to create. And so I've definitely made some pals online and have been able to sort of expand my crafty community uh, like in my own personal life. And it just sort of um, inspires and motivates me to keep creating because I have people to share it with that also enjoy it. Did you grow up with it? Daisy, I, I mean, I, um, 
when you know when I was growing up, Mum was always sewing. She always made our dresses. She always made like little funky jumpsuits for us. And she even <laughs> used to have a production line where she was actually commissioned to make windsheeters. So after school, we were like her little mini production line. We'd be holding the cuffs and she'd be sewing, <laughs> overlocking. You would think that I would have picked up something along you the way. You would think, yes. You <laughs> would think. You never know. It might it might be like a second nature to you if you ever gave it a try again. But um, I, I guess I, I didn't grow up around like sewing. My auntie in New Zealand and my grandma, um, my auntie's a plus size fashion designer. So I've always sort of been around someone trendy and fashionable and mum was a chef. So she was always making and we were in part of the uh, production line, helping her make things um, for when she was doing uh, like big catering orders. So we would make, we would help her make samosas and we would help her make other bits and bobs um, for her cafe, but sewing, it's always sort of been around a little bit because someone was sewing and there was a hand-me-down sewing machine. So when I was a teenager, there was a machine in the house and I guess I wanted to have something unique. I didn't want to be wearing the same thing as other people. So I made something to wear and it sort of sparked from there way back in the day. And then as an adult, I rediscovered it, um, fashion and uh, creative expression in my my clothing has always been something that I've loved, but it wasn't until I moved to New Zealand in like 2016 and sort of was introduced to the local fashion community that I was like, okay, this is where I want to be. This is the this community that I want to be involved in. You know, the thing that I love about sewing and knitting and sort of these traditionally female crafts um, is that they are subversive. Back in the day, the sewing circles and the knitting circles was the way that women got together and, you know, sort of really, you know, had that community that perhaps they weren't allowed to have because they were living in deeply patriarchal sort of communities. Um, I love that. And I love that now it allows you to go, I don't have to wear what fashion dictates to me. I can create my own style. So that's the thing I deeply wish I could embrace if I could actually sew. Um, do you see that there's sort of a, a sense of, of independence and, and real, you know, a, a subversive side to what you do? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people sew. It's because they can't find the things that suit themselves or that fit their bodies. And so they make in order to express themselves that makes them feel totally authentic and like for people that are that don't fit into the industry standards of sizing or maybe they're really tall or they have cultural things that they would like to incorporate into their clothing if you can't find that then you can make it and um it's really easy to do it you know start really small and and start with little things and then as you keep going you'll be able to incorporate more of your personality and your style into what you're making and what about the budget side of things, uh, Daisy? Uh, obviously, you know, when you think about fast fashion, right, there's some really yeah. cheap items out there. I saw a T-shirt for $2 the other day and just sort of took a moment to reflect on that and thought, you know, how many hours of work would go into to making this T-shirt and how on earth are they flogging it for $2? So can you talk us through perhaps the process of how much time would go into making a T-shirt and that sort of budget conscious people, um, you know, what they need to consider when they take up sewing? Yeah, well, like many creative hobbies, sewing isn't a very, well, I wouldn't say it's super affordable. You do have to invest, not not just your time, but, you know, you have to buy a machine and you have to buy, you know, materials and tools. 
I think it's really possible to start from a budget, um, like from an affordable budget by going secondhand and looking for things that maybe have been pre-used. So I actually bought my old sewing machine on Facebook Marketplace and it lasted me for four years before I decided to upgrade. And then looking for things like fabric and materials, you can, you know, you don't have to go to a fabric store, you can get a bed sheet or you can get curtains or you can go to an op shop or a secondhand store and find more affordable fabrics. And then um, when, when you're looking at it from a fast fashion perspective, one of the really sort of cool things about making your own clothes is it does make you reflect on that, like you just said, and makes you realize how much time goes into it. So there's time that goes into learning the craft of sewing, and then there's time that goes into, um, you know, gaining skills and and feeling confident. And then um, maybe making making one garment, it could take you five to eight hours and you might not do that all in one day. You might spread that over a week just be, and, and by doing that, you'll sort of see this is what what time and effort goes into making just one thing it definitely makes you rethink your um your approach to buying clothing and that's one of my favorite things about um sewing is that i've been able to become more aware of the fast fashion industry how wonderful too to be able to rescue the pieces that you love this is the thing i wish i could just when i because i have so many older clothes and you know there might be a tear or maybe you know I've got to take the hammer away and I have to take it to a person I wish I could just go oh I'll just fix that now that to be <laughs> empowered by that uh are you is, someone yeah. do you go thrifting do you find things that you know you can pieces that you thrifting. can rescue <laughs> yeah I do like yeah I love thrifting and I I also like holding on to all of my scraps because I I just sort of have this connection to them and I don't know when I will ever need them again. So like this wall hanging that's behind me, I made that out of uh, leftover fabric from other projects. So I can like look at this pink fabric here and go, oh, that was from that dress that I made or this one here, that was from a top that I made. And so I can see those pieces going somewhere else. But it's, it is so rewarding when you repair something and you can give it a little bit longer of a life and then you know that it's, um, it's going to get loved and worn. And, and it's also got those little memories of you maybe where you did damage that or, you know, when you realise that it was broken, you go, wow, this is lasting me so long because I've put so much love into making it. Yeah, I yeah, I love that. But you know, you're you're at this stage where obviously you're good at what you do. Can you wind back the clock yes. when you, when you first started? Can you tell us about some of the disasters? Oh, one of the one of the main things that I did when I was really just starting out. Um, there's there's two like main sewing machines that I use. This one is a sewing machine like that just does your straight stitching and you're sewing up the seams and there's a, an overlocker which does the seam finishing and it's what you sort of see in most insides of uh, garments that you'll buy from a shop so it's sort of like this zigzag kind of thing on the edge of the seam and uh, when I was first learning how to use that not only is it tricky to thread and set up but I wasn't quite watching where my fabric was sort of um, coming together and I just zoomed it up whizzed it up and it just tr- cut off the whole side of <laughs> uh, the seam. So so I sort of had this bunched up kind of uh, uh, join in my, my garment. And while it can't, kind of looked a little bit artistic and maybe it was intentional, it was totally unintentional. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I have always been stumped by the bobbin, the threading of the bobbin. To me, a bobbin is like witchcraft. If you can actually <laughs> thread a bobbin, I feel like you could probably 
be an astronaut and, and fly like a you know a, a spacecraft like it's so hard for me to do that but you tell well, me that we can learn to sew <laughs> that anyone can sew so absolutely in truth like honestly in truth yeah i i really do think <laughs> i think the thing about it is though and, and it's like the same thing with learning any craft or hobby is that you do have to give yourself the time not only just like the time in the day but you've also got to go okay i'm going to do something right now and You've also got to remember that the outcome might not always be runway ready or it might not be something that you can go off to the markets and sell. For me, sewing is self-care. So when I sit down to sew, I'm making an intention that this is time for me to be creative and use the other side of my brain and and take some time to do something that I enjoy just for myself. So if you are going to put the time into going to sew, you've got to make sure you, you give yourself the time to really learn and also make mistakes because that is just part of the learning process. <laughs> love that. That is a lovely, that's, that is a lesson for life. I love that, Daisy. So do check out DIY Daisy. Um, there's uh, some fantastic patterns and blogs and videos and there's also your book as well, which uh, I'm going to get from my daughter because she loves sewing and I reckon. Oh, cool. She, yeah, she'll learn a lot from that. What's in this yeah. book? Well, this book is, um, it's a pattern-free book. So it's like, encouraging you to self-draft your own clothing and uh it's it's all about my diy approach so there's no uh zips there's no buttons there's no darts it's all really simple sewing and you you're creating creating clothing with really simple shapes like squares and rectangles which when you add things like elastic and gathers you can actually turn into things that don't really look like boxy you know what you might imagine mm, as boxy things amazing. um and so there's there's 20 projects and then each project has a variation and so hopefully you'll find some inspiration and some new ideas and maybe you can kick off your sewing journey with your daughter amazing sample no buttons <laughs> no but I, I know no buttons yeah, I, right. I, I'm You're in early. already <laughs> <laughs> oh Daisy it's been lovely to chat with you I really I've been inspired by you absolutely gorgeous thank you thanks for having me Oh, and several, there's the end of our show. My gosh, it's been a bumper, a bumper show today. <laughs> it's been a bit fast and furious. <laughs> Have we earned the fried goods? Uh, I reckon we'll, we should just go and get a potato cake <laughs> yeah. now. Is that your choice? If you were to choose any fried good, would it be a potato cake? It would actually. I do love a potato cake. Yeah, mm. yeah. I can't think of any other fried good that mm. I would. Mm. For me, it's a hot chip. I'd go a bucket of hot chips over a potato cake. Oh, but, yeah, absolutely. Mm. With vinegar oh. and chicken salt. Oh, we're all salivating. All right, <laughs> let's go and do it. It's never too early, apparently. I've been inspired by that woman today. We'll, be, we'll see you next week on Broad Radio. Thanks for joining us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 